Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Europlex podcast. My name is Gabriel Hedinger, and going forward, I will be in charge of carrying out our interviews with some of Europe's most knowledgeable, including academics, journalists, and politicians, uh, about electoral politics and more from across our lovely continent. And I'm very happy to say that for this episode with me today to discuss the last year in German politics is James Jackson, who's a journalist reporting on exactly this and more for publications such as Newsweek, Time Magazine, Financial Times, Wired, a lot of other really impressive titles. So uh, welcome to the podcast, James. I look forward to this discussion. Hi, thanks for having me. So I thought we'd just start off with the major shift that happened as a result of the 2021 elections in Germany that I don't think anyone will not have noticed, which was the shift in power from uh, Angela Merkel's CDU at the time to now Chancellor Olaf Scholz from the centre-left Social Democratic Party. Obviously, that was a, a huge shift that's changed a lot of the dynamics in uh, European and global politics. Uh, but I thought we'd just talk about Scholz and SPD in a German context to begin with. They obviously saw a surge in the elections, but pretty much since they have seen a decrease in their support from around 25%, which they got then, to 20% or below now. Can you just give us your opinion on, you know, was there a honeymoon period for Schultz and then why did that end and how precarious is his position now? So I think it's important to know that the SPD have been polling under 20% for a while. And in fact, during a lot of the last period under Merkel, they polled around the same. They've, they've actually, in a couple of polls, been overtaken by the, were overtaken by the AFD during that period up until elections last year. But Scholz was, of course, Merkel's finance minister. So he was kind of the second most important person in her grand coalition. Many of her governments, I think three, were grand coalitions, which is when the two biggest parties get together. In the German context, that's usually the Christian Union and the SPD. So it's not new for the SPD to be polling badly, but I think it's different now because they actually do have the Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. So I think what we saw in the last election, if I'm honest, is um, it's like a lot of countries in Europe, kind of similar to the UK, Germany is one of these countries where the Conservatives usually are in government. And they, they, the Conservatives have ruled um, the Bundesrepublik, so like the Federal Republic of West Germany, for most of its history. And they usually have the Chancellor and almost all the leaders or ch Chancellor candidates of the Christian Union have eventually been elected Chancellor. That's not true anymore, but that was true until uh, a few years ago. So, uh, and recently we've seen a, a bit of erosion of the CDU leadership and what that actually means to voters. Basically, what I'm trying to say is, it's very easy for the CDU to win elections. So they must have screwed up quite badly last time. And I think that's what we saw with Armin Laschet, who was really not a very good candidate, or at least voters didn't think he was. Um, he ha was quite gaffe prone. He got pictured laughing while at like a pretty serious natural disaster flooding in West Germany that killed quite a few people. So I think at that point, a lot of Germans saw the SPD and they thought, listen, Schultz, we know him, he's, he's vice chancellor. He, they ran like a quite a pretty good campaign. And in the end, a lot of people voted for SPD. 
there's, there was a lot of talk at the time about respect, about um, how Schultz was similar to a Biden, a kind of centre-left figure who's been experienced in government and it's all about respect for voters. Uh, that definitely played a role, but I would say that it, a part of it was just not wanting and not being able to see Armin Laschet as chancellor and Schultz positioning himself as a successor to Merkel. So not particularly ideological or even policy-driven, Although the traffic light government uh, did have some policy, some um, progressive policies in yes. their coalition contract. So yeah, I was I, I was going to move on to that next. We'll get back to uh, the CDU, which is a very unique and interesting force in in European politics, as you say, given their their track record. But even if it's you know as you say that the shift of voters towards Schultz throughout the electoral campaign last year was was mainly a thing about, you know, competence, I guess, in a certain way, change, maybe a loss for the CDU more than like a triumphant victory for the centre-left. There, there, you know, there will still have been shifts because the, the balance of power shifted from this grand coalition with the two major parties towards the traffic light coalition that you just referred to, which just for, for all the listeners is the centre-left SPD. Uh, the Greens, which compared to in a lot of countries is quite a a major force in German politics, and the liberal FDP. So, what would you say the biggest sort of shifts have been in terms of policy that you can see with the new traffic light coalition in power? And has it been smooth sailing? Are there already lots of fractures between the three different parties? I think it's fair to say that it it hasn't been smooth sailing. At this point, I think the FTP have been polling quite badly. And even though they came third last time, they managed to get their leader, Christian Lindner, into the finance ministry, which is a very powerful ministry. So the FTP are quite an interesting party because in some way, they have this um, tradition of kind of European liberalism, which isn't liberalism like you might think of in the United States. Uh, it's actually more of a kind of centre-right form of liberalism where they want low taxes, they want the government to get out the way, or at least that's what they say. So this has created some tensions within the government because a lot of the progressive reforms which the Greens and the SPD wanted to do have basically been blocked by the FDP, even though they're the smallest party in government. And the FDP haven't been rewarded by that in polling. So they've they've dropped from 11.5% uh, and to now they're on 6%. They're in a bit of a bind, personally, I think, because um, they have different groups of voters who want different things from them. And in, in fact, they just did very well last election. They don't usually do as well. So they're kind of trying to um, make up for lost votes. So there's been a number of progressive reforms that have been promised. Um, one of the major ones of those would be introducing, legalizing cannabis. They've also recently been talking about uh, reforming citizenship in Germany, which is where it's very difficult for people to get dual citizenships. So they have quite an old fashioned form of citizenship. It takes a very long time and, and can cost you some money. Um, so they, they recently announced that they were going to do that. It was in the coalition contract, but, or the coalition agreement, but the FDP immediately after the announcement said, well, we don't know about that, even though it had already been in the coalition agreement that they signed up to. Um, I think a lot of the policy that they wanted to change has... So they one thing they introduced is the self-definition law, which was quite a progressive 
law for transgender people about how you legally changed your gender. Is it a medical procedure? Well, they've made it so that you can just go to a government office. That should be coming into force relatively soon. Um, but I do think a lot of Schultz's time in office has been taken up by the Ukraine war, which obviously was not expected in the coalition agreement. So I would say there's a sense that the reforms that they promised, which were socially quite liberal, haven't materialised yet. It's taken a bit of time, but I think that's quite understandable because a lot of the time they've been firefighting, there was the issue of um, the public finances coming out of the corona pandemic, and then the war started in February. So they haven't had a normal time in office, I think. Actually, it's been a bit of a struggle. And one thing where the SPD have been against the other coalition partners would be this war in Ukraine. So the SPD has a long tradition of what they call Wander durch Annäherung. So that means getting close to your opponents or your rivals to transform them. They have the Ostpolitik of Willy Brandt, who was a very popular German leader. I think that he was the first SPD chancellor of um, the Federal Republic of Germany and is still a leading figure in the SPD's kind of understanding of German politics. And he he was, during the Cold War, he got quite close to Russia and, and he didn't want to have such an aggressive stance towards Russia. But that means that the SPD have got this long tradition of pacifism. And in the beginning of the war, they didn't really want to give heavy weapons to Ukraine. And this this fight between the coalition partners of whether they should give weapons or what kind of weapons they should give to Ukraine has been a major point of disagreement with the FDP, the Liberal FDP, and the Greens removing or falling out of favour with Schultz a little bit. And Schultz also taking a lot of powers on foreign policy away from the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, who is from the Green Party and ran against Schultz in the last election. So... In terms of major movements of support then in electoral politics, if the SDP have returned back to their sort of pre-electoral campaign levels, uh, has that mostly been voters returning to the CDU? You mentioned that the Liberals have also uh, seen their support, you know, basically uh, halved. Has that also gone to the CDU? What would you say are the big sort of standout movements that are sort of occupying the minds of party strategists in Germany at the moment. Uh, and when I know also that there's been a search for the alternative um, für Deutschland that we can discuss as well. Sure. So I think, yeah, the, the Greens have kind of established themselves as a, around an 18% party. And I think that's quite impressive, really, considering last election they did well and they, for the first time ever, they ran for the chancellorship. They came third, but still not too bad because in the election before that, the Greens had actually come in last place, you have to remember. So one of the big electoral movements is that the Greens have become quite established. The leadership duo of Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck have been seen to work quite well together and they're the two of the most popular politicians in Germany. However, saying that, they're, they're polling at 18%, which is good for them, but you're probably not going to win the chancellorship with that. At the moment, as you said, the Christian Union are polling at 29%, which is way out in front of the SPD, who are also at 18%. But 
I think it's important to remember as well, um, the, the union, Christian Union are in government, are in opposition at the moment. And I don't actually think people are necessarily very happy with what they're doing in opposition. They are trying to block citizenship reform, or at least have criticised it. They recently blocked a, a pretty modest increase in welfare for people who are unemployed, called Bürgergeld citizens' money in the Bundesrat. So Germany's second chamber, they actually have a um, blocking, not a majority, but they have enough to block certain laws. It's debatable which laws they can block there. So there, I, th I would say last time, a lot of voters who would typically vote for the Christian Union, who for a long time voted for the Christian Union under Angela Merkel, moved away, moved some of that support to Olaf Scholz, because they saw him as a safe pair of hands. They're kind of, right now, they're telling people that they would vote Christian Union as maybe a sign of dissatisfaction with the government, because on the one hand, they haven't been able to achieve as much as they wanted. On the other hand, there are some progressive laws which are somewhat controversial in Germany. For example, citizenship reform or maybe legalizing cannabis. Some people have been blocking that. So, of course, some conservative voters don't like these. But I would say we ha we shouldn't read too much into the polls right now because we're pretty far away from an election, from a, a federal election. The Christian Union have done reasonably well in some local elections. Um, they held control of Nordrhein-Westfalen, which is Germany's most popular state. And they also held, um, they, I, th I think they, over they took control of Schleswig-Holstein, which is the northern state, just north of Hamburg. Um, so they've been doing okay if they've got good candidates. In both of those elections, they had pretty good candidates. The current leader of the Christian Union is Friedrich Merz, who was a longtime rival of Merkel. And I don't think he's particularly popular. Olaf Scholz can, can easily beat him for preferred choice of, of chancellor. So when it comes back to it again, if Merz is the chosen candidate, then I could Im definitely imagine a lot of people going, uh, conservative-leaning voters going for Scholz again. Um, maybe some more liberal voters might go for Robert Harbeck if he is chosen as the Green leader. So it's important to note that in German politics, it's not always the leader of the party who runs for chancellor. So it's not like in a typical parliamentary system like you might see in the UKs. You, the party chooses their candidate, the Kanzler candidate, it's called, usually in a kind of smoke-filled rooms process. Uh, but the SPD, it's now done by the members and certain representatives. So I think in a sense, uh, especially internationally, I'm sure in Germany as well, everyone's still sort of getting over the departure of Angela Merkel. She obviously was a very dominant figure on the world stage, um, very well known and, you know, largely during her tenure respected. But then obviously given the very sad developments this year, um, a lot of the analysis around her has changed. I know you've you've covered this and written about this. And so I'd be interested to hear your view on where the debate in Germany is around that now. And if that, you know, has any impact on uh, the way voters see the various parties or if that's very much the past now. Right. So I think it's important to note there's a bit of a divide between the public and maybe, let's say, the, the more politics wonks or journalists or um, especially security experts with Merkel. So it's not like people are clamoring for her back. A recent survey showed that 71% of people don't want her back. 
a lot of people think that about the same think that Schultz would is doing as good a job as think as they think that Merkel would do a good job. So and there's only about um, 25% of people, 23% who actually would like Merkel back. Whereas, yeah, on this question of who's doing a better job, is it uh, who would do a better job right now? It's, you know, 40%, 40% for Merkel, 40% for Scholz, more or less. Um, so 62% of Germans are still relatively satisfied with her chancellorship as a whole. It's not easy to compare. That's quite low compared to some of her approval ratings at, at various points. But I think it's also quite clear if you look at the policies, um, there's been a lot of critique of criticism coming from various intellectuals, from economists, from journalists. So and Angela Merkel had a what felt like a turbulent time in office and it felt like she was kind of running um, keeping a, a steady hand on the tiller. But actually, many people say that she was just sort of trying to buy time and get things over with, and she didn't really put the ship, sending it into the right direction. Under Angela Merkel, her, the energy policy is in particular problematic because she really went towards Russia and buying gas from Russia through Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, which she personally approved, even after the annexation of Crimea. So I think it's quite easy to say that was pretty irresponsible. This is my personal opinion here. Um, as you said, I mentioned, I read a, an op-ed for Newsweek recently about this. She also made some quite populist decisions such as um, banning nuclear energy. So Germany decided that it was better to phase out nuclear before coal. And that means that Germany, which was once known as a country which was quite ecological, they have a pretty good recycling system. Actually, they burn a lot of coal, including brown lignite coal, which is a particularly dirty form of use. So Germany actually has a very dirty energy grid. Um, there was also not, she, she was a fiscal conservative in a lot of ways. Um, there was quite a lot of inequality, there's still quite a lot of inequality, and there wasn't so much public investment during her period. So some economists have warned, warned of a lost decade under Merkel of, of uh, investment. If you look at some public services, for example, the trains, Deutsche Bahn, a lot of people aren't satisfied with how that works. There's a lot of different uh, problems there, in particular delays, cancelled trains. So I think if you ask people how they're satisfied with Germany as it is. They're not so happy with a lot of the effects of Merkel's policies, but they're still pretty happy with Merkel as a person. She was quite an impressive political figure, sort of, uh, you know, a, the grandmother of the country almost. She managed to portray herself as above the fray quite well. Um, another issue is that Germany's economy developed very much towards in the direction of China and become quite dependent on China, in particular car industry. Um, so one thing that Annalena Baerbock points out in her campaign was they wanted an ethical foreign policy that wasn't based on cuddling up to dictatorship. So, you know, Angela Merkel was often called leader of the free world. In particular, she was um, applauded internationally for standing up to Trump in various ways or perhaps even just showing herself as a different kind of figure to Trump but at the same time was quite close to Putin. You know, she was a Russian speaker and she did try various things to uh, talk Putin around away from his aggression in Ukraine, which we have to remember has been going on since 2014 at least. 
uh, with the annexation of Crimea and the sort of pseudo-separatists in, in the Donbass and Luhansk region. But, you know, at the same time, she also agreed with the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which many Eastern and Central Europeans warned was extremely dangerous and it was a geopolitical project, not a business project. There were also scandals like the VW emissions scandal where VW were found to be faking their emissions tests and they didn't really have to do that. They didn't get in that much trouble, even though it was a blow to... VW and maybe even Germany's reputation internationally. Merkel, as a CDU conservative leader, has often been accused of being on the side of German business more than the German yeah. people. I would argue that her legacy, in particular on energy policy, shows that, yeah, she was willing to make compromises that were easy for German business, but actually undermined Germany and Europe's security not just energy security, the actual security. And we're playing, we're seeing that in Ukraine. In Ukraine, they have a very different opinion on Merkel. And I, I recently saw the, the former ambassador to G Germany from Ukraine um, posting a beer. There's a craft beer in Ukraine, which shows Merkel in a Nazi outfit saying she's Frau Ribbentrop, which was uh, Ribbentrop was the Nazi's foreign minister uh, who made the deal to carve up basically Eastern Europe with Stalin, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. So very, very strong words there, of course. Germans would feel that's quite offensive. Any kind of comparison with the Nazis is not looked on down on very well. But um, yeah, feelings are quite raw in the East around Merkel, in Eastern Europe and Central Europe, I would say. As you mentioned, Nazis and far right, I think the big story, quite you know, shocking story coming out of Germany was the revelation of this far right network, can you say, that had been plotting an attempted coup, which uh, I guess has been mocked in a, in a lot of quarters, but it's still very worrying. Obviously, people have specific connotations with Germany. Uh, and there's also obviously alternative for Deutschland in the federal parliament, I think to many international and I'm sure in Germany, you know, observers as well are one of the more sort of extreme uh, right-wing populist parties that are, you know, c uh, cementing themselves in European politics at the moment. So would you be able to, A, comment on this new story and what the how that's panning out in terms of um, German media and debate? And then also uh, connected and or separately on the Alternative for Deutschland, they have seen increase in polling, if I'm not mistaken, throughout the year. They, they got around 10% in the election, which was uh, a bad performance for them, but now they're back to around 15%. Is that something that's impacting um, the discussions? I think absolutely it is. And I'm currently working on a piece for Time magazine about exactly this. Um, so thanks for asking. Basically, yes, the IFD didn't do so well last time, but they've really established themselves as the voice of the sort of pro-Russian movement in Germany, which is much bigger than in other comparable countries, particularly in the East. You've got to remember that East Germany was a satellite state of the Soviet Union for a long time. And though, you know, people wanted a change in 1989, there are a lot of people in the East, particularly older people, who are not particularly happy with how that change went down. There's been uh, quite high unemployment in the region, pensions are lower. You know, it's, it's not 
especially poor. It's quite poor. It's it's poorer than West Germany. Uh, and there's also quite a lot of right-wing radicals there. So not just the AfD, though the AfD are absolutely linked with some of these right-wing radicals. As you may have seen, one of the people who was arrested in the coup was a former member of the Bundestag for the AfD. And she was going to be in the Vertrauensgruppe, so in one of the kind of leadership steering committees. So um, there, in Germany, I think there's this, there's this narrative outside of the country that Germany is sort of this perfect country without a far right or where they've dealt really well with their history. And it's true to, to some extent. It's very unlikely that the AfD will ever enter um, national government. I think it's, it's still quite unlikely they'll enter state government, though it might be quite difficult to form governments without them in the East in the future. So I think this figure of 15% almost hides that the AfD is polling at the moment. It almost hides how well they're doing in the East at the moment. So actually, um, the AfD are doing extremely well in some Eastern states, partly because of this pro-Russian element, because actually, um, you can see that there's a lot of people who support the Russian narrative. I've met them personally when I've been out reporting. Um, they have their own Facebook groups. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of cases of Ukrainians who have been harassed. I've reported on that before as well. And uh, harassed by either Germans, AfD members, or, or Russian Germans, which is a kind of ethnic minority within Germany that came over in the 80s and 90s. And it's quite hard to get figures on exactly how many they are. Um, there's been reports that the AfD have tried to get this particular minority, though it's also fair to say that the majority of them just vote for the CDU. So it's, it's not like they're all AfD supporters, slightly disproportionately, but not that much. Actually, in states in the East, the AfD polls from 24 up to 30%. So currently in Saxony, the AfD is polling 30%. And in Thuringia, it's 26%, where that's actually first place. One thing that's also changed a lot since the last elections is that in the northeastern state of Mecklenburg-Vorpommern or Mecklenburg-Western Pomerania, which is actually the state where Merkel had her seat, they've gone up by 7.3%. Now, What's interesting about this state is that's exactly where the Nord Stream 2 terminal was meant to go uh, or, or where it was built to before it was shut down when the war started and, and then it was, of course, bombed uh, under mysterious circumstances quite recently. So they've seen a, a big surge in support in the northeast uh, and also in the west. And in the west, they're actually doing a lot better. So in rheinland pfalz they've, they've in, increased by 7.1% in uh, the Saarland by 8.3%. These, these are just polls, of course, but I think the, the biggest trend is that the AfD can be seen as, you know, a party, a leading party in the East, because they're really polling very well when it comes to state elections across the East, except in Berlin, which is, you know, uh, was also part, partly East and partly Western, of course, famously divided by the Berlin Wall, and is uh, sort of urban, multicultural, progressive centre, so quite different from the rest of the, the more rural areas of the East. Um, so coming back to the uh, Reichsberger coup that you, you mentioned, of course it is possible to laugh about it. I mean, the, the guy, the idea that Germans want a monarchy uh, and that they can re-establish the Kaiser based on a conspiracy theory that Germany has been an un 
an illegitimate state ever since the Treaty of Versailles in 1919. I mean, it's it, it's quite silly, isn't it? And of course, the um, supposed next Kaiser Heinrich, I forgot which number he was, I think it was 16th maybe, uh, he had quite a funny dress sense. I saw a viral tweet saying that he looked like he had been radicalised after appearing on Antiques Roadshow, a uh, BBC programme. Uh, but of course, Germany does... One thing that's uh, easy to forget is Germany has a lot of right-wing extremism and also violent right-wing extremism. So many of these people have guns. Many of these people attack refugee houses. So it barely even makes the news in Germany when a refugee house gets firebombed because it happens quite frequently especially in the East. At the same time, I think the fact that this raid actually happened showed that the German security forces are looking at the far right because that wasn't always the case under Merkel. Um, famously, she appointed a spy chief, Hans-Georg Maasen, who was famously close to the AfD and actually had meetings with leaders of the AfD to tell them how to get around the surveillance from his own organisation. And then during a um, sort of far-right riot in the eastern city of Chemnitz, he was found to be spreading propaganda about what they said or, or sort of fake, fake news dif disinformation, conspiracy theories. So if you end up with someone like that as your spy chief, it's, it's pretty clear that you're not going to be doing a very good job of looking after the far-right. So at the same time, although this, uh, this is quite shocking, um, you know, these people were planning on capturing leading politicians like Olaf Scholz storming the Bundestag or the Reichstag at building and forcing a sort of monarchical dictatorship into Germany. I think this sort of big plan sort of undermines... It's easy to get distracted there and think, OK, that's been foiled. We should remember that the far right in Germany is still a threat. It's, in my opinion, a growing threat. They had a bit of a, a weak time during corona because the vast majority of people agreed with government corona policies and the AfD became sort of the party of the corona deniers. But what we have actually seen there is that a lot of people radicalised. A lot of people in their groups, in these corona demonstrated groups, became very, very radical and started to say openly that Germany is a dictatorship because of these measures, these Maßnahmen, and actually now what we're seeing is they've become, the AfD is becoming more popular again in the East, probably because of their Russia policies, um, as well as general dissatisfaction with the economic situation, fear over cost of living. And then people who are going with the AfD are then mixing with these more radical elements. So the AfD itself is radicalizing. It's becoming more under the influence of Björn Hooker, who's the leader in Turingen, um, an Eastern forested state where it looks like he could potentially come first in the next election in the state. So definitely worth watching the East and check out my upcoming article in Time Magazine about that. Will do. Thank you so much for giving all that context. I think it's, as you say, it's a topic that until this week has gone um, quite unnoticed um, around the world, this trend. And obviously it's... Um, It'll be worrying to a lot of people and uh, I guess clinically from a, a political perspective, uh, you know, interesting and important to monitor. So thanks.
for that. Um, we're going to wrap up here. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate all that context. And um, all of our listeners will now be completely clued in on the state of German polls and politics. So thank you so much. Cheers, Gabriel. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLex podcast. To stay up to date with European politics, make sure you subscribe and of course follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Telegram, Vkontakte and YouTube. We're spreading out wherever we can. So do please follow us. There's no excuse not to anymore. You can find us at EuropeLex.eu and at EuropeLex across all social media and at Europe underscore Lex on Instagram. See you next time.